Welcome to Cross Point Church. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you could be here with us and uh, celebrate uh, this special night with us. I want to talk to you tonight a little bit about a, uh, a problem that we are all familiar with. Uh, it can cause all kinds of conflict in marriages and families. It can show up in your workplace. It can cost you your job. It can cost you friendships. It, can, it happens to couples expecting a baby. It can break apart churches. And, and it hurts our relationship with God. What am I talking about? Unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Uh, about a month and a half ago, a team of people from Cross Point Church and another church went to Guatemala, and I was part of that team. And I'd never been to Guatemala before. We were there to build a house for a uh, poor family living in an extremely poor environment. And uh, I, I didn't really know what to expect, but I decided before we went on that trip that I wasn't going to take any expectations with me. I decided that uh, I wasn't going to expect safe and smooth travels. I wasn't expecting to be healthy all week. I wasn't expecting to have all the energy and strength I needed to be a superstar. I wasn't expecting God to show me something I'd never seen before. I wasn't expecting to be inspired. I wasn't expecting to be chosen to do something unique or special while we were there. The only expectation I had was this, that no matter what happened, God was going to be with us. I, I expected that. I expected that no matter what we went through, no matter how bad things got, or no matter how good things got, God, w God was going to be with us that whole week. And for me, leaving behind all those other expectations allowed me to have an absolutely amazing experience on that trip. That trip was full of surprises, full of adventure, full of new life. And when I came home, I decided that I was going to stop placing more expectations on God for things that I want, and I was just going to start trusting God and taking him at his word. And, and that I was going to just start depending on him more. Because here's the thing about unrealistic expectations. Is that when we have unrealistic expectations, we depend on God less. And we just live more independently than we ever should. That, that's what unrealistic expectations do to us. So what does any of that have to do with the birth of Jesus? Because that's what we're here to talk about, right? Is the birth of Jesus. Well, let's, let's find out. We're going to read tonight from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I don't think I've ever talked about this passage of Scripture in my 12 years of preaching, but we're going to talk about it tonight. And it's a passage that you're all, I think, familiar with. Here's what Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was... The first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from, a, from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the same Excuse me, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available to them. Now from 
Nazareth to Bethlehem was a three-day journey. It was between 90 and 120 miles. There's no mention of a donkey. Historians do not think that they had a donkey with them. It's very likely that Mary made the entire three-day journey on foot, nine months pregnant, right, as a teenager. By the way, there were no such thing as teenagers back then. You went from, there was just children and adults. When you were 14, 15 years old, you were an adult. Mary was considered to be a fully-fledged woman, She's carrying this baby, nine months pregnant, probably made the journey, 100-mile journey, three days on foot. This would not have been, you know, uncommon for a teenager, which, again, they don't, they don't even know what that means, teenager back then. They would have expected her to make that journey, and she did. While they're in Bethlehem, Mary goes into labor, and Jesus is born. Luke says this is Mary's firstborn child, which tells us that Mary would have more sons, and we know that she did. Luke's description of Jesus' birth is surprisingly short and sweet. It's the most detailed account we have by far in the New Testament. There is no mention of animals. There's no mention of a stable. There's no mention of an innkeeper. Those are all things that have been added to the story over the centuries. Here's what Luke does tell us. He tells us Jesus was wrapped in strips of cloth. That's not a sign of poverty. That's not some spiritual metaphor. It's just what moms did. I remember doing this back when we had babies. Uh, You know, you take the baby, you you have to have the cloth like in a diamond shape, if I remember right, and you like wrap that child up as tightly as you can so they can't move. And I was told that's supposed to help them calm down and help them sleep. It sounds terrifying to me. Like I can think of very few things worse than being wrapped in cloth and not being able to move and laid in a feeding trough. And that's what we're told Jesus was laid in was this manger, which is a feeding stall or a trough where animals would eat from. And the other thing we're told is that there was no room for them anywhere to have a child. We don't know exactly what an inn was back then. We don't know exactly what kind of lodging they were looking for. If Joseph had family, which he probably did in the area, That just means that they didn't have a room that was big enough for them to have a baby unless it was the main room, which is a possibility. But most like, more than likely, Jesus was born in the entrance of a cave. And he could have been born in some kind of animal pen that was near the house. It's possible he was born in the main living area of a small house with family there. But more likely than all of those things, Jesus was probably born in the mouth of a cave and laid in this feeding trough. Now, why does any of that matter? <laughs> because I think that most of, us are, most of us have held on to this picture of the nativity that is probably not totally accurate. You know, you, you and I, we have nativity scenes in our homes, right? We set up at, at this time of year, and it's usually a stable, and there's usually animals that go around it, right? And there's usually a star or an angel on top of the stable or something like that, and Jesus is in this manger surrounded by the three wise men who came probably a year or two later after his birth and whatever else you have in your nativity scene. By the way, don't throw those things away. Those are, it's still okay to have that, if you're, especially if your grandma or your mom gave it to you. Those things are fun to look at. They make us think of home, right? They make us feel a sense of home. But on the night Jesus was born, 
Mary and Joseph did not feel a sense of home. They were far from home. Jesus was born into a poor family living under a foreign regime. News of his birth would invite violence and terror. Within two years, his parents were forced to flee to Egypt because the king of Judea wanted to find and kill Jesus. Jesus lived as a child of refugees. His family was displaced. They were looking over their shoulder. And part of preparing to have a child, think about this, part of preparing to have a child is you're supposed to develop this uh, birth plan, right? Do people still do that? They develop a birth plan before they have a baby. And you're supposed to, you know, write it all out. And here's, what, here's how we want it to go. I mean, we had five kids, and, and, not, and that was a total waste of time for us. Not, nothing ever went like it was supposed to go. I'm sure it's a good exercise, but it just... The point is, right, every parent wants a safe, they want their child to be born in a safe, predictable environment, right? And Jesus was not born in a safe, predictable environment. He just wasn't. And these details that were given, they're significant. And these details are unexpected. The details that were given of Jesus' birth are unexpected. You would have thought, there's no way that anyone will miss God breaking into our world. It'll be unmistakable. It'll be like any, anything, unlike anything we've ever seen. Because we're talking about the God who created the universe. He breathed life into man, man and woman. The same God who rained fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. The same God who flooded the earth. The same God who sent plagues on Egypt and ended 400 years of oppression. This is the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who shut the mouths of lions when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, the same God who promised he would come to judge the nations and rule the earth from his holy mountain. And when he comes into the earth, there's no way anyone will miss it. But most people did miss it. So why was the Son of God born this way? Why was the Son of God born in darkness, in a cave, in a feeding trough, in obscurity? The Apostle John gives us a clue in John chapter 1, in his account of Jesus' life, verse 10, 11. He says, he's talking about Jesus. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people. And even they rejected him. So John puts together for us the birth and the, and the death of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. The birth and the death of Jesus. He puts together in one statement. And he basically tells us you can't understand the birth of Jesus apart from the death of Jesus. And you can't understand the death of Jesus apart from the birth of Jesus. They go together. We need both. Because the humble birth of Jesus points us forward to the humiliating death of Jesus. That's what it does. The Son of God came to die on a cross outside of the city. And these unexpected details, the cave, the manger, the isolation, the simplicity, they all point us forward to the way in which Jesus would begin to make things right in God's creation. His life and his death were unexpected. And his birth was unexpected. His resurrection, all of it was unexpected. So why would God... 
come into the world to, to live in obscurity for most of his life and then die in his prime? Why would God go out of his way? We've been talking about how God went out of his way to spend time with sinners, with people who were, were, were unclean, not fit for temple worship, people who were not religious, people who were far from God. Why would God go out of his way to heal those people and love those people and show himself to people who we would not pay much attention to? Why, why those people? Why did God love people like that? Jesus is not what people expected him to be. He was not born like a king. He didn't live like a king. He didn't die like a king. He was born to simple, poor, faithful servants. He lived like a servant. And he died like a criminal. He did not cater to people's expectations. He was humble. He was gentle. He was meek. He did not follow the religious standards of his day. He didn't do things to get people to like him. He didn't do things to get people to praise him. He did not cave into the pressure from religious leaders to behave a certain way or talk a certain way. He didn't surround himself with powerful friends. He didn't have much money. He didn't travel very far. He didn't run for office. He didn't write a book. Instead, he served and he saved lowly people. And at just the right time, not when he was old and worn out, but in his prime, he gave up his life. Jesus could have preached way more sermons. He could have healed more people. He could have performed more miracles. But that didn't matter to him. So why does this matter? Because you and I need to change our expectations of God. We need to change our expectations of God. What happens when God fails to meet our expectations? In a marriage, when your spouse fails to meet your expectations, what happens? There's conflict. When your children fail to meet your expectations, there's, there's conflict, there's correction. There's disappointment. There might be brokenness. Unmet expectations can be devastating to any relationship. So what do we do when God doesn't meet our expectations? And I, and I want to ask you this question. Could it be that our expectations of God are unrealistic? Could it be that our expectations of God are unrealistic? God has not promised us that if we trust him, we will have an easy life. He has not promised that we will be physically healthy and live a long life. He has not promised us that if we make good decisions that we'll have financial peace. He didn't promise that if we're sincere and faithful, our marriage will endure. He, didn't, he, he did not promise that bad things won't happen to good people or that our loved ones will not always be safe and will die a peaceful death. He has not promised that if we raise our kids right, they will turn out to be good people. God hasn't promised us any of those things. He has promised us this. In this world, we will have trouble. But Jesus has overcome the world. He has promised us that death will not have the last word. He has promised us that he has forgiven our sins and given us power over, sin, over our sinful nature through faith in Jesus. And he promised that he will be with us and never leave us or forsake us in our pain, in our sorrow, and in our suffering and in our waiting. And Jesus promised us that one day he will come again and he will wipe away every tear and remove every sickness and all of our sorrows and he will bring peace and joy and wholeness to all of creation. 
No more death, no more fear, no more waiting. We won't always understand why bad things happen to us, but we can trust in God even when he doesn't meet our expectations. So what should you expect from God? I think you should expect two things. Expect the unexpected and expect God to be faithful. You can expect that if you trust God, he will be with you. Because what does God care about? Does God care about the things you want? Does God care about your birth plan? No. Does God care that your marriage goes just like you want it to be? That that your career works out according to your dreams and your plans? No. What does God care about most? He cares that we become more and more like Jesus. That's what God cares about. And guess what? That does not require God to meet your expectations. All that it requires of God is that he never gives up on you. And guess what? God promised that he will never give up on you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. He will be with you no matter what. God, we thank you for sending your son into this world in a way that we never expected And we thank you, God, that you were faithful to your promises, that over centuries of waiting, you delivered. And that after we've waited long and and with great expectations, that you will send your son again to redeem us and to make everything right. Help us to remember that and look forward to the coming of Jesus this Christmas season. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, we we felt it was appropriate this Christmas Eve to not only remember the birth of Jesus, but to remember the death of Jesus. And that through the death of Jesus, we have access to God. We've been united to Christ. We can relate to God as our Father. We can have peace with God because he's forgiven our sins, because of his great love. So tonight, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the way that we're going to do that is uh, as soon as I exit the stage, uh, if you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, it doesn't matter if you belong to Cross Point Church or not, we welcome you to come up to this table. Um, you can come up on either side or the front here. You can make three different lines. And we just ask that you take a piece of bread and dip it into the, into the juice and eat it and go back to your seat. You don't have to be quiet and somber during these next few minutes. You can say hello and Merry Christmas to your neighbor. This is a family affair. And we are gathering together around this table as a family who's been purchased by the blood of Christ and adopted by God into his family tonight. That's what we're remembering is, is what God has done to give us peace with him. And so uh, we're going to do that over the next few minutes. And then uh, when we're done, we're going to uh, light your candles and we're going to sing one more hymn together. And uh, then we'll wrap things up. Before we do that, (laughs) I almost forgot a really important um, part of this, what we're about to do. I am going to read from the Gospel of Matthew.
Here we go. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples as they shared this last meal together. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Lord God, we again give thanks to you tonight that through the blood of Jesus, we are forgiven. God, as we celebrate this tonight as a family, may your spirit fill us and give us peace. In Christ's name. Amen.